0: This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Learner Foundation and listeners like you.
1: Anne here with a quick request for you before we start the show. Gabe, my producer, and I are always trying to come up with ways to improve Safe Space Radio. And one thing that would really help us do that is to hear from you about what's working for you about the show and what you'd like us to try. If you could take a minute to answer a short five-question survey after you've heard this show on refugee women in Maine, we would be so grateful. You can find it by visiting safespaceradio.com and clicking on the button that says survey. It won't take long, and it'll help us keep pushing the show in new and exciting directions. Thank you in advance for your response, and thanks for listening. This is WMPG. My name is Anne Hallward, and I'm a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine. And this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is the first show in our new series on women in Maine who have come here as refugees from war. We're living in a time when the number of refugees is on the rise, and we're seeing pictures daily of people arriving in Europe hoping to find a safe place to live. In this series, I'm hoping to learn from the women who have already come here about what that experience was like and how differences in language, culture, race, and religion impact women in particular. I first spoke to Fatima Hussein on Safe Space Radio in 2013 as part of a series on Somali immigrants in Maine. In that interview, which was re-aired last week and which you can find at safespaceradio.com, she talked about how she left Somalia at age 12, living in a refugee camp in Kenya until she was 14 years old. She then came to the United States, moving first to Georgia in 1993 and then to here in Maine in 2001. Fatuma is now the leader of the United Somali Women of Maine, an organization that has expanded to help immigrant women from many countries with the challenges of resettlement, like navigating the school system and getting access to employment and healthcare. They also work to reduce rates of domestic violence and sexual assault. Welcome back to Safe Space Radio, Fatuma. Thank you. I want to start with asking you to give me a really broad picture. when. A woman arrives here in Maine for the first time, what are the big challenges that she has ahead of her to face?
0: Right. I always compare it to a person who is placed in the middle of, you know, a huge, extremely big, big field and you're in the middle. Where do you start? You come to Maine And everything looks different. The culture is different. The people you are going to be neighbors with, they look different. You don't have your relatives and your extended family. The food is different. It's a very fast-paced culture. Um, Everybody minds their own business. Where I come from, everybody, if you're going down the street, people will stop you and they'll ask you, where you going, how is the family? You know, everybody knows everybody. You know, the whole entire village is basically raising the children, and this is a whole different thing. And so, um, I think that the cultural shock is is the, the, the initial reaction is like, oh yeah, I am in a
1: whole different world. When you describe that, the immediate feeling I got was one of
0: loneliness. Like,
1: yeah. people aren't asking you like that. Yeah. I that loneliness is
0: Absolutely. Big. There is a lot of loneliness. There's a lot of sadness that sinks in right away. There's a lot of um, fear. Um, you also have to realize, you know, where we come from, the white person represents power. You know, it represents government. So to us, almost everybody's working for the government. There is a huge fear around government and where we come from. Uh, Help me understand that, in what way? Yeah, governments that are corrupt. You know, the idea that you can bribe a police officer and get what you want. The fact that you can basically kill a person and get away with it. That's a reality for us. you, You talk to an American person about something like that and they look at, if you out of, your, out of your mind and crazy. And, and that is the reality for us. So there's so much fear, um, not to mention that services are not accessible because they're not culturally and linguistically appropriate. And so it is such a hard road. Um, you know, we, we, most of us don't speak English, most women are not educated yet we are you know we are the most i think courageous women you can ever find on earth the idea that you lose every little thing that you had and you come to a foreign country and make it work i want to talk to menas about that yeah. we deserve a lot of respect so,
1: I'm still coming back to this image of a person arriving and standing in the middle of the field. I'm just picturing that. I'm picturing the grief and the fear and the culture shock that you're describing and the kind of overwhelm. Wow. And you said something that caught my attention. You said a lot of the services are not accessible because they're not culturally or linguistically appropriate. So give me an example. What kind of services are we talking about
0: here? So social services are the most essential piece that um, women will need right away. And what is that? Um, so housing? That's or... housing, medical, um, education for the children, refugee benefits, transportation, childcare, care, um, adult education, um, reproductive health for women. You know, all of all of those services are very essential services to ground the person from the beginning of the settlement. And those services tend to be housed within mainstream organizations. So when we're talking about DHHS, we're really talking about a humongous agency that has thousands of people. And if the staff within the Department of Health and Human Services are not trained on cultural sensitivity trainings, then they, they have a hard time delivering the service in a culturally and linguistically appropriate manner.
1: So the issue of language, I feel like, is very easy to understand. You know, if you can't talk to each other, how do you deliver a service? But when you talk about culturally appropriate services, like what would be an example of an interaction that goes badly
0: because the DHS workers say is culturally inappropriate? An example is if that worker is not conscious of his or her cultural lens, that has very severe implications. We had a case where um, the child needed to have surgery. We, the refugees, have a very different view around Western medicine. And in this particular case, um, the child you know, looks very healthy you know, physically, you know, and the worker was explaining to the family, the parents, that this child needs surgery right away. And the father said, look at my kid, look at how he looks healthy, what are you talking about? And when the worker called me, while they were still in this session, I explained to her the reason why dad is saying that is because we look at health from external from outside not necessarily internal and so this kid who was a bit chubby dad was saying look if he's sick he wouldn't have gained all of this weight you know in our culture the chubbier you are the bigger you look the more prettier it is the more healthy it is and I explained to work, I said look We need to go back and explain to the family and talk about medical needs internally. And because we were able to broker the cultural disconnect that the worker and the family had, we were able to educate the family, we were able to educate the worker, and it was a good, you know, success um, outcome that we had. And that child still lives in the community, very healthy, no issues.
1: I can so picture how that could have been awful, like the doctor could have misinterpreted and felt his family was neglectful and (laughs) it could have gone in a terrible direction. So, Vatuma, when you first came here, you're 14 years old, you really are that person standing in the middle of the field. What were the first things that happened? Where did you stay? How did you
0: find a place to stay? Um, When a war occurs, when a country goes into war, nobody prepares for it. Nobody knows, um, you know. Like Mainers, people, you know, in Somalia, just did what they needed to do every day. You know, go to work, take care of your families. But nobody says, okay, you know, in two weeks we're going to go into war, and therefore let's pack. It, it doesn't. It doesn't happen that way. And so, in my case, a war occurred. I mean, we went into war, and and people were all over the place. We got displaced, um, and then I went with my extended family. And um, so they became, by default, my parents. Um, I came in a family of 18 people, five women and girls. I was the second youngest and 13 men and boys. So we arrived and here we are, 18 people who are not necessarily from one family unit. So the, the, the cultural differences, the age difference, the, the gender, I mean, all of that even created more and more of um, issues for us.
1: How, how do you mean? Can you give me an example? Right.
0: Um, so we came to Georgia in a two-bedroom apartment.
1: For it's 18 people. For
0: 18 people. Who were
1: not necessarily blood relatives. Yes.
0: We, we, uh-huh. are, we, are, we are blood relatives, but we were not like... Um, brothers and sisters um are this extended family and back then Somalia just into went into war and so families started you know adapting children because if your sister passed away and she left five children what do you do do you leave them behind or do they become your children and so this was very this was a huge phenomenon where everybody was helping everybody and so i was one of the lucky ones who got helped as well and so we arrive and you know my mom and my dad are not there now remember you know very young this is when i'm getting my first menstruation periods you know, this is this is very critical for me to have my mother there and so so it was it was you know a bunch of men it was um you know people who once we come here because of their experiences their trauma the issues that they've had getting to where we are, you know, people functioned very differently. So it was like we were not necessarily wanted there. Me and my aunt were not necessarily wanted there. And I remember for the first six months, we moved 11 different times. 11 different times. School was horrible. And at the same time, for me, it was peaceful because then I wasn't faced with, you know, I think my worst days were like Friday into Sunday going to Monday morning it was extremely very very hard because here we were crammed in a two-bedroom apartment people were not getting along now remember when people come from war-torn countries there's a huge amount of trauma a lot of women are raped a lot of men participate in the war you see people who are being killed so all of that you know the mental status of everybody is at a different level i mean it's all over the place and and then what happens the most vulnerable people lose in many times because you know if somebody's upset they lash out at the you know us if someone doesn't want us there you know it's us if something wrong goes wrong it's us and then you go to school we lived in a very wide suburban um, area, even though it was in Georgia, where you would think, you know, a lot of people of color are there. And, and going to school with my accent, although I knew English from the beginning, um, with my accent, you know, kids who are not acknowledging you as a fellow student, you know, because you're a foreigner. What it did for me, though, was I knew that I needed to make the best out of it, and that was education. That was making sure that as a, a young girl growing up that I was protected, um, I, I, I wanted to make sure that I would use the bad experiences to help me a better person. And I think that sort of set the stage for me to come to Maine and for me to, you know, make a better life for others. So you describe being in this very small apartment with eighteen
1: people, all of whom, in some ways, had been traumatized by, in one way or another, and that the weekends spent with them were actually the hardest part. Were there restrictions for you as a fourteen-year-old girl on being able to kind of leave that apartment? And
0: yes, and I, I just want to remind you that I am a fourteen-year-old African girl. So a fourteen-year-old African girl and a fourteen-year-old American girl. Uh, very different you know I'm, I'm coming from a culture where it's all about family, it's all about the village, it's all about the community so this individuality piece do not exist and so it never crossed my mind that at the age of 14 I needed to leave now you know you talk to my son who is 14 and you know it's, it's all about I, it's all about me um, so for me when things were very hard and there were a lot of fights, I will cook more, I will clean more, I will do more laundry, I will make more tea, I will feed people more, um, sort of made um, people to either like me or support me, because that, that's you know there isn't it would be absurd at the age of fourteen, even 18. For me to leave home and go on my own, it would be extremely unheard of. It's not part of our culture. Our culture is whether you're a man or a woman, the expectations for you to stay home until you create your own family. And so for me to think about that at that time, I, I just couldn't. I couldn't.
1: Those 11 times that you moved, were they? With that group of eighteen each time, or were you and your aunt at some point moving separately
0: at some point, what happened is um the fights became physical, and I think it was December seventeenth or December nineteenth or something like that that we eventually um, you know got beaten up, and we were literally like kicked out me and my aunt in the middle of the night um and so prior to that, we had moved maybe two or three times. And then for the next month or two, we would go to a family and they'll keep us from being a week or two. And then we have no place. See, all of this time, none of the people who were involved in trying to get us to a place said to us that we had options around foster care or we had options around oh, yeah. services we We didn't know, and also it's you know it's important to know that because we're a small community, because everybody knows everybody, you also had you know men who wanted to take advantage of you and and all of this so very 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 um scary time and I'll tell you those girls that we were together, you know it was six or seven of us, um including my aunt, many of them did not make it. What does that mean? Um, many of them, you know, turn to make bad choices. They they turn to drugs, or um, you know, people are taking advantage of them in terms of sexual exploitation. Um, because when, when you're vulnerable um, and you don't have a a helping hand, um, then I think I think you you fall for a lot of bad things and, um, and I look back and, and, and I, I tend to see um, some of those girls and it's, it's hard, it's very, very hard. And I think again, all of this is what I think set the foundation for me to learn from my experiences and to, um, to help others.
1: So now you're here in Lewiston, Maine, running an organization that is trying to reach out to young girls, I'm imagining. So what are you doing to help teenagers who've arrived here who might be in a similar situation, who are vulnerable, who don't have a safe place to live?
0: We work with families right from the beginning when they, when they arrive. And, and we want to make sure that people are empowered. And I think, I think one of the things that was hard for me was I wasn't empowered enough to understand what options I had at the time and so we you know we, we provide a ton of information and education so that families and young girls are able to understand what services help rights they have and that they are the driver of that vision so that's that's one one way of of helping them there are many 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 cases of family conflicts that come to us and you'll see me like you know two o'clock in the morning if there was a cps case child protective services case or something that's happening in a crisis in a family you know trying to mediate trying to find options for those girls so that those girls are able to continue with their education Also, if those families have young girls within those families that are not able to reach their goals because of what's happening in the home, then we may work with that girl without the family knowing. When Um, you say
1: goals, do you mean like finishing, graduating grade 8? Absolutely.
0: Yeah, education is the key. Mm -hmm. Um, Also empowering those girls and educating them and saying, I will often use my, my personal story. I'll say, look, at that age, of, you know, the age of 14, I was here. I didn't have no mother, no sisters, no nothing. And I, I share my story with, with without, you know, holding it back, you know, from a very sincere place, because I think it, it does inspire other girls. It does show them that, yes, you can make it, you know, if you have the right tools, if you have helping hands, if you have the vision in you and the motivation in you. Right now it may be hard, but you can absolutely, absolutely do it. I often say there is nothing you cannot do in America. You can do anything in America if you put it into your mind. And and then the other piece that we do in helping families and girls is the advocacy piece and the idea that if people want to access services and those systems are not ready for immigrants and refugees to access those services, it can discourage people. People are already um, at a vulnerable place. They're, they're coming from a place where so much has happened to them and so they start they, they try that one time, and that one time if it doesn't work. They were in isolation to begin with. They come back, isolate themselves. You don't see them again.
1: Right. I mean, it feels like as I'm listening to you, that part of what you're trying to infuse into the people you work with is like believe in yourself. Don't give up. Yeah. This extraordinary
0: kind of wanting people to have that drive and sense of possibility. Yeah. And and you know, I want to say to that Somali woman who has seven children. You can walk into DHHS and demand for A, B, C. Yeah, if she qualifies for, and many of our women do qualify for.
1: I see. So part of your role is just helping educate people it's know like, to you, do it.
0: Yeah, you can't just presume and say, "I'm going to send you a bunch of letters in the mail in English, and assume that you know what you're supposed to do."
1: And that's where you come in as an advocate. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, and I'll tell you, as an advocate, we do it in a way that we create partnership, and we're not, you know, we don't go there and act crazy. We <laughs> we go there civilized and um, say, look, can we work together? And even offer services for the partner agents that we're working with. So, for instance, you know, we'll help you interpret. We'll do cultural broker services. We will help you train. We'll come to a staff meeting. We'll do whatever, you know. Let's work on this case.
1: No, I can imagine that you are, you are a gift to DHHS. I mean, it's it seems like a win-win situation.
0: Absolutely. The department has been really good to us.
1: So glad to hear that. Yeah. So when I hear you talk about uh, your effectiveness in helping people access the services that they're entitled to... I can't help but remember the whole scandal that happened in 2002 with the mayor of Lewiston really asking Somalis to stop coming, that the social system in Lewiston could no longer support the needs. What do you say to him and to people like him who who continue to feel that way about the cost to the social service system?
0: First of all, I want to tell all Mainers that immigrants and refugees are assets to the state of Maine. We bring in millions of dollars to the state of Maine because of federal refugee program that brings us as resettlement refugees in the state of Maine and because of all the grants that are designed to help and assist refugees. Just for your information, Catherine Bessman did our uh, professor at Goby College did a research and there is a report out there of how much money refugees bring to the state of Maine. Secondly, the benefits that refugees receive are benefits that any other Mainer is eligible for. The criteria are the same. Having said that, when you look at the numbers of the percentage of refugees in the welfare system versus the percentage of Mainers, native Mainers, in the welfare system. Our numbers are so small, you won't believe. Today you hear elected officials talking about us, targeting the immigrants, indicating that we are the drain to the system. We come in, we need a little bit of help, and we go to work. We are hard-working people. We are people who don't do drugs. Most of us don't do drugs. Most of us don't get into trouble. Most of us are just very, very quiet, peaceful, polite, responsible people. When someone goes through a war experience and comes to live in a state like Maine, you know the value of life and you know that you have a second chance in life and we don't gamble with that. We are very, very, very appreciative of what we have. And just my last point, and I always say this, Maine is an aging state. We are the future of Maine, whether we like it or not. I wanna say to Mainers, I think it's time for us to acknowledge that we are a state that has all different cultural backgrounds, a welcoming state, and that we should not feed off the fear that is trying to be instilled in us, the fear that's out there that immigrants are draining our resources, that's not true.
1: I think for me as a mom raising a child in Maine, Probably one of my biggest fears has been how homogeneous his world is and how little he's been exposed to people from around the world and different cultures, just in ways of thinking. So just to add to what you're saying, I think for me the feeling is one of such of hope and excitement and like even gratitude that my child is going to grow up more of a cosmopolitan person as a result. Yes. It
0: seems to me that the benefit is all around. Oh, the benefit is all around. You know, immigrant kids, second generation, first generation, who are doing so much good work, native-born Mainers, who would not have otherwise come into contact with people like us, you know, mingled in the same classrooms, shopping areas, worshiping places, everywhere. That's the vision we have for Maine.
1: It's better preparation for life. Yeah, that's the in vision. the world is very interconnected at this point.
0: Absolutely. That's the vision we have for Maine. And so I know most Mainers who are in their home minding their own business, I know. They don't believe in this fear that's being spilled out there based on immigrants, refugees. I know they don't believe in that, and that I'm hopeful for.
1: Fatuma, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space Radio. It is such a pleasure
0: to have you again. Can we do this again in two and a half years? Yeah, maybe (laughs) Maybe more frequent. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs)
1: Thank you. You're welcome. If someone wants to find you and the United Somali
0: Women of Maine, is it United org? Yes, org. And we have a location in Portland, and we have a location in Lewiston. If people want to find us, they can email us at info at org.
1: Yes, USW as in United Somali, women of Maine spelled out. Okay, yeah. thank you so much. You're welcome. If you like this show and want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at SafeSpaceRadio.com, where you can listen to all of our past shows, including the earlier series on Somali immigrants in Maine. While you're there, please do click on the survey button and give us your feedback about this show. We'd also love it if you'd subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely.